Podcast One Production. How much do you trust your bank? We've seen stories of banks being hacked. We've seen stories of people coming to the bank and none of their money's there in other countries. Uh, I myself had a decent collection of credit cards, which was never used maliciously, but it just shows that banks aren't particularly secure organisations anymore. Maybe they never were. And now people are starting to think a lot about cryptocurrency. So how safe is cryptocurrency? Same vibe, we're hearing about all these hacks, we're hearing about exchanges getting robbed and people losing millions of dollars, but there is a change and there is a wave coming in it. It's, it's going to change the way we use money. We're already seeing it in China. We're already seeing it in parts of the globe. Here to help us talk through some of those points is Jake Joachim Pyatt. He is the lead developer for Decred. Now, it's a cryptocurrency that they have developed themselves and it solves some of the problems that we've initially seen with Bitcoin. It's got some really excellent ideas in terms of security and decentralization of responsibility and voting rights. So welcome, Jack. Tell us a bit about yourself. For sure. I'm the project lead for, for the Decred project, and I spend a lot of my time uh, working with developers and managing, uh, you know, managing the project at a higher level. And I'm also the CEO of company Zero LLC, which is one of the uh, premier contractors for the Decred project. And the Decred project is a community-directed store of value. It's a cryptocurrency, and it focuses on uh, being you know, secure, adaptable, and sustainable in a way that, say, Bitcoin is not. And you know, I've been working in the space since early 2013. I used to work on uh, Bitcoin, specifically BTC Suite, an alternative full node implementation of Bitcoin from the ground up. And uh, I did that for a few years, became you know, kind of jaded with the Bitcoin community. And then I, I, I created an altcoin called Decred with a couple other co-founders, uh, Taco Time and Ingsoc. And uh, that's, uh, that's what has sort of led us here today. And you mentioned that, uh, you know, Bitcoin had a few problems. Why is it not sustainable? What issues has it gotten? What was frustrating for you? And why did you leave and create your own cryptocurrency? Well, I think that, you know, Bitcoin got a lot of people's attention, you know, between 2009 and 2012. And what drew me to the project uh, was that it was a fairer system than the fiat, uh, you know, the fiat banking system and the fiat financial world. In the sense that no one can really confiscate your balance, no one can arbitrarily deny you, you know, deny you the ability to spend your coins, and it was really sort of censorship resistant in a way that the fiat, you know, financial system just wasn't. Eventually, I sort of dipped my toe in. I started doing some development work with my team of developers that were working on another project called CipherTight. It's, uh, you know, it was a secure online backup service. And so we understood sort of the relevance of custody and custodying your own assets and your own data. And so that drew us in and we started to have a closer look. And what we found is, is that we decided that there should be an alternative to Bitcoin Core and we rewrote basically the whole stack in Go. And we did that because we felt like there needed to be some diversity in the space because it was really a monoculture built around Bitcoin Core. And as you know, and as as intelligent as some of the Bitcoin Core developers, you know, were and are, we felt like it was it was very much a monoculture and it was a you know a, a real technocracy where if you weren't one of these sort of preordained members of the community, 
you basically had no standing when it came to you know making changes or uh, you know building the community up. So so I as effectively an outsider, I showed up you know with a bunch of other people and we we just started hacking. And that uh, didn't go over particularly well. So, so you know, the people who had been there working for several years saw this in a sort of adversarial light, and you know, correspondingly, made sure that, say, privately, people would hear that you know you shouldn't run our software because, well, it could fork. And so we we got into this situation where we had put a bunch of time, energy, and money into reinforce and improve the Bitcoin ecosystem, only to ha- only to be sort of effectively pushed out. And you know what that made clear to me is is that while Bitcoin was way fairer than say a U.S. dollar to you know in, in terms of Bitcoin, but it was way less fair from a governance perspective. So you know even though I'm here contributing lots of positive energy and lots of useful infrastructure, I was effectively locked out of that system. So so I saw it as as it, it was a brilliant system, but it had a, a serious shortcoming, and that shortcoming was governance, or put another way, the ability to make decisions as a group. Yeah, which seems like a much fairer system and a much better way of going about things. You were pretty frustrated about the central risks that everything everything faced, including uh, certificate authorities. And that was one of the first things that uh, raised your eyebrow about how vulnerable the internet and certificates were. And for everyone who doesn't know, a certificate, when you go to a banking website or any website for these days, you have a certificate and you'll have a private key if you own the website and then there'll be a certificate of authority that has a public key and you need to make sure those line up. And we've seen these things hacked. So way back in 2011, a Dutch certificate authority called DigiNotar was actually hacked and as well as Komodo and the hacker who claimed to have done this also claimed they hacked into GlobalSign and definitely from DigiNotar, the hacker issued certificates. So like you were saying, Jake, why is this third party signing certificates for you? Because if a hacker takes control of this central certificate authority and then he's issuing certificates, he essentially owns the private key and can see all the communications for the certificates he's issued, which is you know, a pretty big concern. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can, uh, if you can obtain one of these uh, CA signing keys, you can man in the middle any you know, TLS communications that use these, uh, these uh, you know, certificate authority signed cert, you know, certs. So, so it's obviously a, a very big weak point in terms of both, uh, you know, hackers and both, uh, you know, and also uh, governments. If governments are so inclined to, you know, man in the middle connections, they can go to a local, you know, certificate authority and coerce them into getting the signing key and bada bing, bada boom, they can forge certificates all day. And the really bad thing about this hack is they don't know how long he was in the system and how many certificates he issued. There could still be certificates today running on very secure government banking websites that are using this DigiNotar certificate. And like you said, it just gives them complete access. Not to mention exactly like we've seen here in Australia, the government is pressuring the ISPs or, or has already done so to give them access to our digital footprints, such as our cookies and our you know, digital breadcrumb that leads us to where we've been and what have we been doing online. So absolutely, it's a concern for privacy. For sure. And then, you know, uh, I mean, things have gotten particularly interesting in Australia, of all places. If I recall correctly, there was a law passed that um, that allows uh, ASIO to demand that developers insert backdoors on demand, you know, into encryption software. So I saw that, I guess that's what, probably a year old or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this is pretty alarming. (laughs) Yeah, this is as old as history itself. I mean, in terms of IT. You look at Juniper that had a backdoor into all their firewalls. You've got the Chinese government now creating their own 
uh, x86 architecture CPUs, and I'd be highly surprised if they didn't have some serious backdoors. Uh, and also the Chinese government changing the mandate to have all their own chip supplies, I think, by 2022. So, yeah, all this uh, centralized creation of certificates, of authorities, of government having access to bits and pieces, essentially just leads us to this place where, and I think the ship has already sailed, privacy is, is not a thing anymore. And, and I guess people like you, Jake, are trying to address that. And another really interesting thing that you mentioned about, uh, you know, people not being denied transactions I'm not sure if you've ever seen the uh, show Years and Years here in Australia. It's on SBS, but you know it shows a, a potential future where people will go to the bank, and this has happened all over the world previously, and even here in Victoria, you go to the bank to get your money out, and it, it's gone. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, as far as uh, privacy and security go, it's a uh, you know it's it's becoming a a truly scarce asset. Uh, you know, in the context of all this modern telecommunications stuff we're seeing, you go to banks. The banks can basically disappear your money. I mean, I mean, what's a bank? A bank is effectively a permissioned database that you know you do a special dance with, and they get you know they'll put put an entry in their database, and if for whatever reason they don't like you, sometimes they'll you know they'll restrict it, they'll stop it, they'll seize it, they'll freeze it, they'll they'll you know effectively close your account, or in some cases, like you point out, you know, the money will just straight up disappear, and you know they can sort of wipe their hands of it and be like, oh, the insurance will handle it, and you know you're left holding the bag. Well, we saw this in Victoria years and years ago, and a family friend of ours was affected by it. I can't remember the name of the bank. It was something like Victorian uh, Pyramid Bank or something like that. Anyway, yeah, they, they had their life savings in there, and it was gone one day. They'd made some poor investments, and the money was gone. Uh, yeah, frightening stuff. So how does you know, cryptocurrencies, um, Bitcoin being the famous one, Ethereum, but also, more importantly, Decred that you've created, how does that address it? People get really worried that, Cryptocurrency isn't a tangible asset. And the argument to that is neither is cash. You know, cash hasn't been gold back since 1988, I believe is the right year. But people are so worried that it's not tangible. Where is their money? How does Decred give people the comfort and how do you secure to make sure that cash is always going to be there? Well, you know, uh, I, I, it's interesting to hear that there's a different date for you in Australia about, uh, you know, cash not being backed by anything. It's 1988 for you. And then it's, a, I believe it's 1971 for the, for those of us in the U S we've been at it a little bit longer, uh, manufacturing funny money <laughs> in terms of decred. I mean, the way we, the way we guarantee this is that we try to create a secure system. And what do we mean when we say secure? So in a system that's permissionless where you're sending and receiving money based on public key or, you know, public key, uh, public private key pairs, you end up in this, uh, you end up in a scenario where, where, the security and the ability to play games with transactions comes down to something called double spending, right? So if, if I try to spend money with person A and person B at the same time, and they're not careful about how they receive my funds, there can be games played. That is that one, you know, person A could think they're receiving a payment, but it's actually person B who receives the payment and person B could even be me. So um, in terms of security, what we do is that we, is that we have a consensus algorithm, and this is the same way that a pure proof-of-work cryptocurrency like uh, Bitcoin works, is that we have a consensus algorithm where everyone agrees on what constitutes valid blocks. Then, based on us all agreeing to this set of rules about what constitutes a valid block, we can determine uh, which blocks are valid and which blocks are invalid. As a function of that, it, it becomes very difficult effectively impossible without a quantum computer to steal funds from somebody. So for example, if you have a whole bunch of, you know, if you have a hundred, a hundred decred on our, on our blockchain, 
neither I nor anyone else can steal it. Even in a worst case scenario that you were some kind of fraudster and you were trying to play games with the hundred coins you have and spend it in two places at once. In that case, the, you know, the person, the, the people receiving those coins are protected against that by merit of this, you know, of the consensus algorithm. So the consensus algorithm makes sure that you can't double spend, or if you are going to double spend, it's incredibly expensive to, uh, to execute a double spend. And then in the context of Decred, say, compared to Bitcoin, is we make double spends roughly an order of magnitude or you know, maybe almost two orders of magnitude more expensive uh, than a pure proof-of-work cryptocurrency. So from a security perspective, your funds are extremely well secured on most blockchains from a, uh, from a cryptographic standpoint. Now, you're saying double spend. Wouldn't a traditional banking system be vulnerable to the same thing? Well, well, so with traditional banking systems, they can be double spent. It's like the same idea of writing. It's, it's like basically passing bad checks. If you go back, you know, 20, 30 years in the past, you used to be able to write a check for $1,000 to someone, to person A, write a check for $1,000 to person B, and only have, let's say, you know, $1,100 in your account. So only one of those checks is going gonna, is gonna to actually deposit cleanly so that, you know, when you pay by check, people could game this. But uh, with cryptocurrencies, the settlement process is actually substantially faster. When you pay by check, you know, uh, nowadays, well, with like the phone deposit apps and stuff like that, things might settle the next day or a couple days out. But, you know, with, with cryptocurrencies, things typically settle in, a, you know, between single digit minutes and double digit minutes. So it's like, you know, it's like a few minutes to a few hours versus a few days for the fiat banking, you know, world. So this, this notion of double spending has been around for a long time. And what it is, is that, it's, it's people trying to game what the ledger says. So it's like, oh, I can, pa- I can put out two checks because they don't actually settle to the ledger for a couple of days. So I have a little bit of wiggle room. And then in the context of a cryptocurrency, that whole process is automated, doesn't require a bank, doesn't require somebody to, you know, mash buttons or update some permission database. It just occurs effectively automatically. And so that process just goes way quicker. So it's actually substantially harder to do this double spending with a cryptocurrency than it was with a check at least back in the day all right so let's turn our attention on this the security they sing so everyone in 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 my world we're talking about how secure blockchain is how basically cryptocurrency is built around this but we still see you know these headline news that you know every single person who was part of an exchange was hacked and they lost millions of dollars we also see we've had an example here in melbourne where someone connected to a wi-fi network at mcdonald's of all places and he lost about 100 bitcoin it's just trying to explain to everyone that, that where that is. It's not so much the blockchain that's being hacked, but it's the exchanges or the people. And that comes down to just normal stuff like bad network management, bad passwords, bad patching of systems. Explain how those hacks are happening and, and what people should do to try and limit those losses. For sure. So, so um, all blockchains are based on, you know, sort of one of the fundamental pieces of tech that they all use is this thing called public key encryption. There's two components. There's a public key which is you can share publicly without a whole lot of uh, security implications. And then there's a private key, which you have to keep private or else people can basically, you know, steal your funds. So, so when people get hacked, like you were describing at a McDonald's, what's happening there is, is that someone is gaining access to their computer. And then by gaining access to that person's computer, they're able to gain access to the private keys that correspond to those coins. So if people can get at your private, it, it, get at your private keys, they can effectively steal your coins. Now, now something that's a bit of an aside here is, is that this is really the main use case for things like hardware wallets. 
Hardware wallets take your, your, your private keys and take them off of your, you know, your main computer and put them on a, like a small, you know, a miniature microcontroller that sticks into your USB port. So what that does is let's pretend that McDonald's scenario comes up. Somebody gets onto your computer, but then they can't actually get on to the device that has the, the private keys on them, which is this hardware wallet. So to, to, to some extent, the, at that point, you're protected against an attack like that. Now, the other one that you were talking about is the exchanges. So with exchanges, what you're doing is, is that exchanges are at least, in most contexts, entirely custodial. Those are called centralized exchanges. So, for example, if I go to, you know, Binance or Coinbase or, you know, or uh, Kraken or any of these other, you know, major centralized exchanges, when I send my coins to them, I'm actually giving up custody of them. And then they are storing them in what is effectively, you know, which is, it's effectively a permission database, just like a bank, so that these ex centralized exchanges act as pretty much literally a bank. So when there's a theft from an exchange, it isn't a theft from your private keys or your public keys. It's a theft from the private keys of the exchange. So basically, the same attack that I, you know, that we, that we talked about at McDonald's has happened to the exchange. So somebody can penetrate their network, get remote access to it, get access to the private keys of the exchange, and then clear the coins out. So, so that's sort of that's the way the threat model works in, you know, in cryptocurrency. Let's get on to now, you know, we're, we're in this weird state where, you know, you've got Donald Trump saying he's not going to accept uh, postal votes. You've got governments claiming all over the world that they've got democracy and then their citizens going into protest on, you know, how real that is. And, you know, we're seeing governments win with nearly 100% of the vote in countries like Russia. How, now, I know that um, Decred in particular have done a lot of work in completely decentralizing. So what I mean is... Um, Essentially, instead of having, you know, one leader or one person that uh, makes the decisions in Decred, it's essentially a pure, or in its most purest form, a democracy. So any changes that are made to Decred, such as, like you mentioned, if you were going to decide to work towards a quantum encryption protocol, uh, that would go out to your entire community, anyone who I believe has staking power, is that correct, uh, in Decred? And then you would vote on that, and then that change would be made. And everything on the block is stored. You, you basically store value, proof of stake, and who made the vote, when they made the vote, how they made the vote. It's, it's basically pure democracy. Explain to me how Decred believes that could actually help the world. Well, I think that, I, I think that a major problem that we've been trying to address and, and address it in a technological fashion is, is that of governance and decision-making as a group. And the, and the problem that, that you see with people like Donald Trump, he's an extremely polarizing figure. Some people love him, some people hate him. And the, and the, the issue is, is that we all put our votes in some ballot box. They count up the ballot boxes. At the end of the day, we can't prove that our votes were actually counted. And then some person gets put in charge and basically gets granted with all this sovereignty. And with Decred, we actually go the opposite direction, which is say, you know, even though I'm the project lead and I'm, you know, I'm sort of leading the building process of building the stuff out, when we make decisions as a group, it's basically a bunch of stakeholders who are, you know, pseudonymous. We don't know who everybody is, but people show up, they, they, they lock their coins for a time to participate in this, in this voting process. And this occurs both on chain when there's consensus changes, like you were mentioning before, but also occurs off chain when we're making decisions about how do we allocate funds and like what projects do we pursue, you know, uh, who does the marketing, you know, who does our PR, 
all these questions have to get answered. So instead of assign, you know, basically us collectively electing people, which is sort of a, you know, a, a, dele- a delegation system where we delegate sovereignty to, to an elected official, what we do instead of that is that we vote for and when there's major changes, we all vote. So it's effectively like a, you know, like a, like a, a, a long running referendum system. And I think that that goes a long way to solving a lot of the sovereignty problems that, you know, that occur in either, uh, you know, a constitutional uh, a government or, excuse me, a, a presidential governments or parliamentary governments, right? Because you got to elect, you know, your, your MPs or you got to elect, you know, your Congress, you know, your Congress people or your senators. And that whole process is very loaded, right? You know, these people get elected. They say they're going to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G. They get elected. They do none of that, right? They do whatever the hell they feel like doing, whatever makes them the most money, whatever makes their, you know, family rich. And that whole process where you assign agency to these people, I think is fundamentally flawed. So if we want to sort of move the peg forward as, you know, as a human society, I think we need to start to get these elected leaders out of the way and sort of go back to what the people want. And, you know, at least in Decred, we're, we're blessed because we have, uh, you know, we have a basis for making these decisions. So if you have a whole bunch of coins, you can, uh, you can lock a whole bunch of them and you have more say than someone else. Whereas, you know, in a nation state context, it's a little, it's obviously a little bit murkier. It's like, well, should it be one person, one vote? Should it be uh, one taxpayer, one, one dollar paid in tax, one vote? I mean, so how, how the system would work in terms of a nation state is a bit, you know, up in the air, but we try to remove the agency and remove the elected officials as sort of like a, you know, a broad plan to sort of change things for the better. But you still have that problem where the rich essentially would have more coins and they have more voting power and therefore influence decisions quite a lot. There, yes, we, we do have that. And, you know, I would argue that our system where it's a linear system, like let's say if a person locks a thousand coins and a person locks a hundred coins, the person who has a thousand coins has 10 times the sovereignty of the one that has the hundred coins. But I would argue that in, you know, in the, the one person, one vote systems, it's actually far worse in the sense that one person, one vote is intended to kind of restrict sovereignty so that it's like each of us has a bounded amount of sovereignty. But the reality is, is that the people, you know, the people who have all the money can then, you know, run commercials all day, try to influence all of us on a day-to-day basis. And so I would argue that the sovereignty for people in these nation state systems is, is super linear. That is that, you know, someone might, might have, you know, let's say you have a million dollars and someone has $10 million. Person with $10 million can get way more sovereignty, you know, out of that, out of the nation state, one person, one vote system than uh, they can in a decred like system because they can use that extra money to influence other people. So let's talk about how that would look, right? So everyone always freaks out when you say to them, this uh, giant supercomputer is going to run the world, but essentially we would have no voted officials. We would have a few people that might maintain a system or, you know, deal with things like finances and whatnot, but essentially you'd have this decentralized computer that runs on everyone's computers perhaps. And every decision that was made from, you know, as huge as going to war to transferring money to whatever it might be would be voted by the population all the time. So there would be literally hundreds or even thousands of decisions per day that people could opt to, to weigh in on and influence society. It sounds like an interesting concept, then doesn't it open it up to hacking of that system, hacking of the system that computers that run on the decentralized moment? And I want to tell everyone a little bit about decentralized. So let's talk about it in its most pure form. 
or its easiest form to understand. Back in the day, you had your computer and you had your drive inside your computer and you had your data on that machine. Decentralization of storage means that, you know, it might be in the cloud, it might be across 10 different data centers, or there's even solutions out there where you're storing your data on everyone's computer. Everyone who downloads this small application holds a small piece of your data. And there's lots of advantages to this. If you're a hacker and you walk into a building and you're trying to get access to this data, you need the keys to be able to access the locations of your data and all the information on it. It becomes much harder to hack things. So whilst it would still be very difficult to hack this decentralized government system, are there still some risks you perceive in that kind of system? And how far are we away technology-wise? Like you mentioned, you're trying to solve this in Decred and, you know, there's lots of decisions to be made. Is it, is it one vote per person or is it a nationalised system? How far down the track are we of this thinking and, and this future state where we do have the technology available to provide to governments to decentralise anything, everything? I think that one of the one of the biggest barriers to you know to making progress on this front is really the incentive system that already exists. So the system that already exists has you know elected officials. These elected officials have quite a lot of power. So um, anything that undermines the power of those elected officials, um, you know, particularly if those elected officials care more about their own power than they do about you know sort of the benefit of the group. It's, it would be hard to convince people to, you know, to run the ball in this direction, even though I think, you know, things could drastically improve. And you mentioned, you know, hundreds or thousands of decisions being made a, a day. I think that the sort of thing we would, we would see is, and, and we see this within our own project, is, is that there's, there's, there's a smaller number of proposals. Like there might be, you know, a few proposals a month that go up and get voted on. And each of those proposals is basically someone saying, hey, I and potentially a group of other people are going to take care of A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And then there's a laundry list of things that they would do. So, so to some extent, the delegation process still exists, but it's a much more fluid delegation process. So it's not like, oh, you know, uh, uh, we always delegate everything to the same person the same way. It's if, you know, if the process works really great one way, we can, you know, we can keep doing it that way. If it doesn't work, we can make adjustments. And then, in, you know, in terms of seeing this, seeing things like this implemented, one of the bigger barriers will be convincing, you know, convincing existing nation state governor, you know, governance systems that this is a good idea. I mean, I think on a, you know, on a smaller, on a local level, it could totally work. It also would upset the status quo. So to that, in, in that way, I've, I've always been skeptical that these systems would actually see, you know, production use by governments because, it would mean some people, you know, don't have as much sovereignty as they used to. And that's like, and that's a really powerful incentive. And that's also part of the reason why we've decided to do things the way we have with, uh, you know, with Decred in general, is that, hey, if we tried to go to a government, you know, whether it's a, you know, city, city, county, state, local, or whatever, the there's a very real chance that they would just go, nope, we don't like it because, uh, County official X no longer has a job, right? You know, so so uh, so so that's at least my approach to it. We do it we do it where we do it because it's permission. There's a really interesting uh, research going on in Adelaide at the moment. Uh, maybe you should reach out to those guys. They're looking at future states of government. Yes, yeah, super interesting stuff, and they are actually looking at better ways of doing things with all these systems that we've got in place. And everything goes online, right? So we we completely do away with cash society. Do you think that would make it easier or harder for hackers? I'm thinking like it goes back to that 
you know, when we used to have our computers in server racks and under our desks, and now everything's in the cloud, it's going to become more of an identity and access management. Like, how do I protect my funds and my identity? How do I better protect my private keys, my passwords? I mean, it's going to be a little bit hard in this world to expect everyone to use a hardware wallet. Is there any like clever thinking? Because me as a hacker, I'm thinking if cash suddenly disappears and money is completely online, the systems that you guys are developing in Decred are great, but the fault is going to lie in the humans that use this with weak passwords, with sharing their keys, with leaving their keys on their computers. And What's kind of the solution around that? Is there any kind of thinking going on right now to stop hackers taking advantage of people who would be vulnerable, say people that aren't as technology gifted as you? Yeah, I mean, I think hardware wallets are, are a good start. And, you know, I, I acknowledge that the expectation that everyone use a hardware wallet, uh, it's like it's not for everyone, right? Not everybody has that level of patience or, you know, has that level of like, oh, I'm, you know, has that level of sort of, uh, you, know, con- you know, legitimate concern about these attacks. And so the only way, you know, uh, you know, to make progress here is to, is to start, see what, see what kind of attacks happen, and then try to prevent those attacks, and then keep iterating that process. And you're totally, you're totally right to point out that you know, there, there's always going to be a social engineering layer. There's always going to be a way to influence people, just the same way you can lobby people or you, know, you can run commercials on television to get elected now. Those same sort of threats exist in the context of digital sovereignty as well. So in terms of both value storage and having digital sovereignty, you know, the, the solution to me strikes me as being we have to design better ways to do what hardware wallets are doing, which is effectively protect your private keys against uh, particularly remote access attacks. Because, you know, in person, you know, somebody can always show up with like a bat and threaten you and be like, I'm going <laughs> to smash your legs out. I'm going to smash your legs and unless you give me all the all your keys and be like, oh, OK, take the keys. And, you know, that can happen. So the whole process of security, the, the best bet in the, you know, the first place to start would be to prevent remote access attacks. And it strikes me that as much as you might want to do something like try to integrate this into a phone, that almost is, you know, that's too online. So you almost, you almost need some kind of like, it could even be something as dumb as like a little dongle that communicates with your phone, but basically a separate piece of hardware that has a secure element for, for storage of uh, private keys that you can use with an online computer like a phone or a laptop or, you know, a desktop computer. And then to your point about like, you know, uh, what is it, servers and clients is, yeah, everything, everything is, you know, at least lately has been in the cloud. But, I, you know, if we go back to the you know, 60s and 70s and we go, well, what was computing like then? Then it was all on the server because the clients, you know, it was too expensive to have, uh, you know, like a client that had too, you know, a powerful CPU. So you had these like dumb clients that, that, that uh, connected to like, powerful servers then you know clients got powerful and then it became a client-based system and then it's yo-yoed back to the cloud now for convenience reasons and i think we're going to continue to see this yo-yoing back and forth over the next i don't know several decades from you know from the perspective of sovereignty and security you've got to protect your private keys it'd be really interesting to see some work being done into building private keys into persons biometric systems so sort of your two-factor of not not as simple as fingerprints but some really interesting work going on in Wi-Fi and radar signaling of a person's body for creating a private key. Jake, thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate you diving into the world of cryptocurrency for us. It's opened up a huge and interesting topic for us all. Where are we going to be in the next 10 years? Who knows? Thank you very much. Thanks for having me on, Bastion. Appreciate it. Hacking is real. 
people and organisations are being taken down every day. If you'd like some professional advice and assistance, go online to ctrlgroup.com.au and we'll help you.